Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Flicks. All right, it's summertime, and that's a time for catching movies. And Rick and Nick Talk Flicks knows the movies you're catching are at home right now, but we are getting closer to wider releases. We're getting closer. Thanks for coming along today. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. CEC, which owns the Bemidji Theater and other theaters uh, across the upper Midwest, they have announced they are reopening very soon. Saw some details on that on Facebook the other day. If you like the Bemidji Theater on Facebook, you can check that out and learn more. But they are getting closer to reopening the Bemidji Theater. They're getting, it's kind of fun in an abstract kind of a way where the movies that are playing right now, because nothing new is coming out, so they're hearkening back to yesteryear. In fact, just this last week, Jurassic Park, 30 years after it first came out, was number one in the box office, beating yeah. Jaws. So it's been Spielberg Fest on the big screen. Yes, it has. <laughs> Handful of theaters and drive-in theaters and yeah. Not I, the- I would love to see some of these on the big screen. I'm just I'm not going yet. So not the uh the worst thing in the world that no. we've got Jurassic Park returning to the top on that. That's great. People are getting to see it on the big screen who maybe didn't get to in the past. I would love to see more of this when there's not a pandemic and there's not a shortage of I agree. movies. You know, I think you should have if you got a multiplex, ten screens or whatever, one of those screens is going to be the retro screen. We're going to bring back a special showing for whatever of such and such movie that you've seen it a hundred times, but let's see it on the big screen. Never seen Jaws on the big screen. I'd love to see Jaws on the big screen, just not in the midst of a pandemic. That's right. But the date is Friday, July 10th, that the CEC theaters will be reopening with some new safety standards that are in place. Um, If you like CEC Theaters, Bemidji MN on Facebook, uh, you can check out that link to those items and what that's going to look like. But Friday, July 10th is when uh, CEC Theaters, including the Bemidji Theater, uh, will be reopening with those changes in place. So we'll look forward to that. By the way, keep your eye open if you're on Facebook Friends with them. Make sure that you are if you're not already. They've got their popcorn sales. You know, you can't beat movie theater popcorn. And you do an online, you know, you you get online and you, I'm going to get a bag. Okay, then on whatever Saturday, you swing by and you get it. And it's a huge bag. (coughs) Pardon me. It's like five large popcorns in one giant bag. So it's huge. And, of course, it's movie popcorn, so you can't. You can't beat it. They don't put too much butter on it, so it stays longer. But you can't beat movie theater popcorn. That's right. Yep. It's like a cup of Coke at McDonald's. I don't know what they do to that, but it's extra super good. So keep an eye out for the popcorn pickups that they've got going on, and you can continue to enjoy that as well. We're going to talk about animated movies today with our podcast episode, which I'm surprised we have never gotten into animated films quite as much but we're going to take a deep dive on that today but first we've got a couple of major stories and topical stories to get into first 
is a little bit more of a, this is actually coming up in the near future, and that is a few release date updates. And the biggest one in particular, we have talked about it. It looked like it was going to be the flagship that was going to get this all rolling again as far as returning to the movies, and that's Tenet, which has been moved back by two weeks by Warner Brothers. They have set July 31st as the release date now, just to give a little bit more time, it looks like, for theaters to reopen. Have you heard what they've done, Dave? I have. With uh, the, I know you're going to love this, so I'll let you know. Well, it. I might be traveling that weekend, which is is driving me crazy because I've talked about this on the show before, and I've talked to you about this before, that I've always wanted to see this movie on the big screen, and I might now end up missing it. July 17th, instead of Tenet opening that day, Warner Brothers is reissuing the the uh, the movie that came 10 years ago uh, from Christopher Nolan, Inception, and that's going to be on the big screen on July 17th uh, all across the country um, as a way of kind of building into not only Tenet, but I believe they're also going to show some previews for some other upcoming Warner Brothers films with the re-release of Inception. Yeah, Inception, great movie. I did see it when it first came out on the big screen. Lucky it was you. totally worth it. Yes. Um, yeah, this is going to be one of those things where, and, and this is where we should probably interject here too, there's a lot of catnip to draw you to go see these things, and I would love to go see them, but I, per, this is my own personal decision. I'm not going to, because I, if it's in a drive-in movie theater, I'd love to have one reopen here in Bemidji. There used to be. I'd go to that, because you're contained in your car. But it's, it comes down to a choice, and if you are going to go, make sure, make sure, make sure, please, 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 that you do what you need to do to protect yourselves. Wear your mask. That's difficult when you're eating popcorn in the movie theater and you're having your drink in the movie theater. But do what you can do. Keep a distance. Be safe. As if, you, if it's a packed theater, maybe rethink it. Go on a matinee or whatever the case. But this is going to be one of those things you want to support the business. But you got to be careful and you got to be safe because this is not pretend. Uh, at this point, we've now just crossed 120,000 dead. You've got to be careful. On the flip side of that coin, which seems to be in contradiction of what I've just said, it would be fun to go see a lot of these. I would love to go see some of these. Either again or for the first time in some cases. Jaws is the scariest movie I've ever seen, according to me. I'd love to see it on the big screen and set myself away from the lake all summer long. I'm not going on that water. It's a lake, Dave. I don't care. Usually, Jaws, that shark was huge. <laughs> yep, especially when you see it even larger on the big screen Maybe it than looks you've seen it before. Maybe on the big screen. I don't know. Maybe, but it, does, it doesn't maybe. matter. It doesn't matter. That's a fair point, too. So, Tenet now has been moved back by two weeks, and that means that the new flagship film that is going to kind of restart movies in theaters will be Mulan, and that is going to be on July 24th that Mulan is set to release. So, that is looking like it is the first one that is going to be coming out. Another date change Wonder Woman 1984 has been moved from August to October now. A slight adjustment there, but they've moved it back to October, giving it a little bit more buffer room. These early movies, they're they're going to be the the initial markers. We're going to find out quite a bit from Mulan and from Tenet about how moviegoers are feeling, how comfortable are they feeling about returning to theaters and going to see movies. How well have theaters adjusted when it comes to setting up social distancing guidelines as well as other guidelines and precautions that are going to be in place. We're going to start to find out some of those things here with those movies at the end of July. Somebody had to be the one to restart it. Some movies had to be the ones to restart it. 
these two, they're going to be the ones, and we're going to find out from them. If it sticks. If right, it sticks. Right now, right. every morning, in not everywhere, it's not happening everywhere, but probably a third of the country, the numbers are on a rise in a big, in a big kind of way. And some states are starting to look into maybe shutting down again, a big lockdown, because you go to places, physical distancing isn't a thing. Everyone's out, everyone's got their masks off, and it's, it's not helpful. Minnesota, where we are, where we're doing this, has done a pretty good job. The numbers are actually dropping, but that's not the case everywhere, and it might change here, too, as we go. Will these dates stick? Will things continue to reopen, or maybe if we pushed it too fast? All good questions that will be answered over the course of time. We'll see. In other news, I, I know it's 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 yeah. You have to find that balance, right? Let's go, you d- bud, you do. everyone. You, well, it's important to remark on though at this time because we are waiting to see can and should people be heading back to the theaters. I mean, we've talked about that. We have we have wanted that, and at the same time, we want that, but to a certain extent safety. because there has to be safety involved as well. But in other news, I've Michael Keaton. What's what's Michael Keaton doing in the headlines these days, Dave? He's Batman again. Well, yes, he is again. <laughs> Tell us more. So they're going to be working on a Flash movie, and we're not. If anyone that's a comic book fan is knows about the multiverse, you know they did Spider Man into the multiverse. Well, Flash has gone into different universes before, and he's actually already visited the Michael Keaton Batman universe, even though Michael Keaton didn't show up in it, he they went to that universe. Well, now Michael Keaton is coming back as Batman 30 years or so after the last time. He was you know, famously 1989 and 92 in, in Tim Burton's Batman and Batman Returns. Two excellent movies. Uh, they, they were okay. They were, they were okay. Okay? Okay. I've heard, I mean, I've heard a lot of people show, especially a lot of appreciation for Batman Returns as well for being... A top-notch sequel. But. I like the first one better. Oh, you but, do? Uh, I thought he did a great job as Batman, but I thought both of them kind of collapsed under their own weight. But that's that's a whole other well, debate. Well, they were a little Tim Burtonized. Oh, very at much. Times. Yes. Very much. Yes. But that's, but, that's a whole other debate. I enjoy them. And I've, still pretty entertaining Yeah, movies. they're enjoyable, but they're, they, are, they are different. But that's a whole other talk. So they're going to have this revisiting in this multiverse Going back to the Tim Burton era, Batman, with Michael Keaton clearly as an aging Batman, because he's pushing 70. So he's, I mean, we had, when Ben Affleck did Batman, he was an older, more grizzled Batman. This is going to be that and then some. Yes. So we're going to be having a very different kind of a Batman. Exactly what's going to be involved, how much screen time is Bruce Wayne slash Batman going to get with Michael Keaton? We don't know yet. Right now, they're just, last I heard, early talks. But it looks like 30 years after the fact, that would have been like recasting Adam West as Batman for Tim Burton's 1989 Batman. <laughs> People are like, what? No, he's too old. Well, here comes Michael Keaton back. But I think he could pull it off. Well, that'd be like recasting Harrison Ford as Indiana. Oh, wait a minute. That was actually done. I, we've talked about that yes. one, yes. Yes. It did remind me a little bit of that, though. Like, are we going to see Michael Keaton in any kind of fighting within this? Like, that's where my mind goes is like, or is he going to be in sort of this background kind of role where you realize that this is Bruce Wayne, that this is Batman, but he's kind of in an advisory kind of role? I, who but knows? You, but you have something totally different. First of all, Batman clearly is going to be about 70 years old. Yes. But Batman is really easy to replace with a stuntman. You can barely, you see only his mouth. So it could be anybody's mouth from the long shot who's doing the spinning wheel kick or whatever. 
It doesn't have to be Tim. It doesn't have to be Michael Keaton until it's a close up. But Batman at seventy, I mean, what's going to be believable? It depends on what they're going to do. If Correct. It's, if it's one of those things where, boy, you you're still at this. This you're still. Well, someone's got to do it. You know, something like that. If they do it well, and I think there's a great <laughs> that, indication that they could. You know, well, what happened to Robin? Oh, don't get me started. You know that kind of thing. And Michael Keaton's Batman never had a Robin. That came later. So who knows if they do it right? Then you can do it. Batman isn't as action oriented as as Indiana Jones when it comes to Harrison Ford. Batman, at his truest essence, is really a detective. That's so right. So he's kind of lurking in the shadows, and he strikes when he needs to. But it's kind of like you save your energy. It's like a lion on the Serengeti laying in the sun, but when it needs to strike, and then back laying in the sun in the Serengeti. That's kind of like Batman. And so Indiana Jones is a lot more action than that. And you can't hide the fact that that's really not Harrison Ford swinging on the thing or it's too much CGI. I think they have a better chance of pulling it off successfully with Michael Keaton as a 70-year-old Batman, which still has its own questions. I'm like, all right, I'm on board if if you do it well. I'll be on board with it, too, if they do it well. <laughs> if it's just a what were you I'm thinking? curious right now. I'm, yes. It's a curiosity bit for me right now. Yeah. We'll see. So... Animated films. Talking animated films today, which again, I'm amazed that we have never gotten to this topic until now. But that's just the widespread of movie discussion topics that there are out there, oh, which is great. One real quick thing before we jump into sure. animated movies. We've talked about the possibility. Well, now it's kind of happened. The Academy Awards, which will be in early 2021, usually February, they've postponed them. They have. They're going to be coming up in, a, in uh, April. And who knows, they're going to be obviously changing the way that movies are eligible. So usually they have to be out by December 31st, which is generally why some of the bigger movies, they might come out in L.A. and New York at the very end of the year and then open wide later in the next year just to make them eligible for the Oscars. Well, there's still, this is still a fluid situation, so exactly what the criteria will be and when the movies can be out. So they haven't put a date they on have not that put a as date far as yet. the cutoff. Okay. But there will be most likely some wiggle room. Some movies will have into 2021 to come out and still be eligible for the next Oscars. But again, with the pandemic, not really sure if things are flaring up. Is it going to happen? Could the Oscars still be canceled? It's all good questions. Stay tuned. Okay. So yeah. there we go. Real quick. All right. Good update. Thank yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So on to animated films, there's, there's a lot to, to talk about with animated films about the way that they've changed over the years, um, the place that they have in film, filmmaking and film going today. What do you think of though when you think of animated films, Dave? Disney. Disney. Yeah. <laughs> First very, thing. Very easy to to drift toward Disney because Disney not only has been at the center of of a lot that's happened with animated films, but Disney has been a jumping off point for other animated film, not only companies but also films themselves that have really taken a lot of inspiration from what Disney has done. And that that stretches back all the way to the 1930s. Oh, yeah. You know, and we got to give a little nod to what is considered by many to be one of the first moving pictures That's ever. That's right. It's not what you would call a movie, but it's still, when you're talking about a technological upgrade, because movies have only been around roughly 100 years. They're not, they don't go that far back as they were developing it. Well, Thomas Edison considered what is considered to be the first moving picture. It was really simple. It looked kind of like a lampshade with slits in it, and it had uh, like stop-motion version of a horse running. And as you flip this thing around, looking through the slits, you see the far side of the lampshade, so to speak. That's right. And you see the horse galloping. And it's just a real simple thing. 
But it, and I saw the actual thing and got to, you know, see it myself. He's got a museum down in Florida and I got to see it and see what is considered the first moving picture. And it evolved from there. And, you know, Disney was one of the first companies, Walt Disney in particular, starting off with, you know, Steamboat Willie, which is one of the first, I think it's the first Disney picture of any sort at all with Mickey Mouse and black and white. It's considered a classic. You can see it on Disney Plus. It's there now. But um, that's, you know, in a lot of ways it got its start with animation. You didn't need actors and, well, how are we going to do this? And filming kind of went in two different ways. There was animated and then there was, well, let's get a camera and go out into the wilderness and shoot people on a set or whatever the case. They're kind of branched off right from the very beginning. It did. And w- you see the influence. I think the question was, could we take cartoons, w- which were huge during this time? Could you take cartoons and could you make feature films out of these cartoons? Could you stretch it out that much? And that's what that's what Walt Disney was was very successful at doing, and, well, and Snow White the at first? the forefront of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah, nineteen thirty-eight. Is that what that was? First feature-length animated musical fantasy film is how it's described, and that was nineteen thirty-seven. Oh, I was when that so came close. out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But that's that laid the groundwork. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is is often looked at as that that beginning, laying the groundwork kind of movie of not only animated films but also the formula for animated films as well with a fairy tale type of story as well as some music attached into and and that charming kind of kind of plot and story um with all of its peaks and valleys that came with it you know and the nice thing is you think of you know animated movies as very child friendly you get a lot of you know Brothers Grimm in a lot of those early ones. I mean, you yes. get some sinister moments. You know, the evil queen oh, yeah. in Snow White is kind of frightening. And there's plenty of other animated movies we can get into that are a little intense for kids. It's totally a kid's movie. But yeah, but this part is kind of frightening. That's right. And that yeah, that was something that I think took some of those studios, including Disney, time to get an idea of how to best strike that balance of what... What do we do with these kids' movies? Because with some of those older ones, you watch them and you go, wow, you know, there are some darker undertones that come with that, which we'll get into more on that later with some of with the split that happened studio-wise for Disney then in the uh, 60s, well, in the 70s and 80s. But you see a little bit of that, like trying to balance. This is kind of a kid's film, but at the same time, this is this is a wide ranging film as far as who might be able to appreciate this and enjoy watching it. By the way, I, I was reading here about Snow White. Critics said that Snow White would result in in ruin for Disney. That there would be that there'd be a financial collapse because of it because they thought the colors were too bright and that people would get sick of of the different stuff that they try to do with the movie. They could not have been more wrong. Yeah. Snow White was a smashing success. And had a long following after that with all kinds of other great, you know, princesses and other things. Um, and obviously, it's worked well for Disney. They're one of the biggest companies, entertainment or otherwise, in the world today. Yep. After after Snow White came, came um, Pinocchio, which came in 1940, and then Fantasia followed not far after, which gave a chance to get a character like Mickey Mouse onto the big screen now out of just the cartoon shorts that they had done shorts and feature films. They kind of go hand in hand with, ta- a- with the animated. And if you talk about the formula, well, Fantasia, I don't think follows really any formula. It's almost like a free flowing opera 
orchestral piece with something to look at over the course of it. I mean, it's it's very different. There's there's a narrative, sort of, but not really. You know, I mean, it's it's a very different thing. So, formula schmormula. It's like the on it's the uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service was to Bond is what Fantasia is to Disney movies. Very different. It is, but lovely. Yes, it and it's it's had its place in folklore as a result because of what they did with the music and the visuals attached together, and maybe tying those together all the more. But it wasn't just it. it it's not just what Disney was doing at that time during the 30s, 40s, 50s with animated films. There was a lot of other stuff going on related to animation at that time too with with other studios that was taking place and you you see this too with um with some of the other cartoon characters of the time who would occasionally get their own feature films. It just wasn't quite to the extent and the commercial success that Disney had. Yeah, and I think it's I have to I'm not looking at it right now, so I'm going off the top of my head. Was it the late sixties or was it the seventies that the Looney Tunes came along? Bugs Bunny and Daffy Dog. Ooh, and I have to look it up. But they were before that, I think, weren't they? Did they go that far back? I think so. They very well may have gone into the sixties back into there, maybe even before that. But yeah, I, I think it was somewhere around there that, you know, then you started to have some big rival, and I think Disney's biggest rival at that point yeah, had Lo- to have been Warner Brothers. Looney Tunes, which was through Warner Brothers, came along in the early thirties. Oh wow. The Merry well, Melodies the Merry Melodies came in nineteen thirty one that oh, they wow. were around. So um Bugs Bunny's official debut came in 1940 when when he came around so yeah See how they, far off i was all right they were in that time it was it was a lot more of just those animated shorts though that like that's where a lot of warner brothers focus was was on that they started to drift into a few more feature films but they had a lot of the animated shorts that they did yeah so you've got disney doing what disney's doing you've got warner brothers now popping up and it's not like even to this day you have other groups that aren't known for their animation We'll put out an animation thing. You know, you've got, we'll leave Pixar alone for right now, but you'd have something come out of, say, Paramount or something come out of Universal that's not known for its animation department to more or less a success or not so much a success. Some people think, well, if it's not Disney, it's not worth going to see. If it's not Looney Tunes or Warner cartoons, not worth going to see. And now Disney's kind of one of the only games in town along with Pixar. But even back then, you'd have other folks starting to pick up, well, let's do something of our own that either wouldn't work out as well or would have some measure of success. So it really kind of the two front runners, Disney and the Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters. We're talking animated films today. Then came the death of Walt Disney, which was in 1966, and then Roy O. Disney in 1971. And they had really spearheaded making animated films a big part of what Disney did. Like, with Disney films during that time period, you had the the occasional complimentary film that would come along that was a live-action film. But animated films, it felt like, were really at a, a pillar of Disney and what they did. That changed then after, after the two of them passed away. Um, there was a big moment as well that came when, during producing The Fox and the Hound, um, there was an, an animator by the name of Don Bluth who left... Disney at that time, and he formed his own rival studio, which he named Don Bluth Productions. Um, and he took some Disney animators along with him as well. And they went a different creative route that produced some more films that were their own right classics. Yeah, their own right classics that had 
a little bit of a darker twinge to them as well. Like you had mentioned earlier, Dave, they kind of took that on to another degree as well. And it started with um, The Secret of Nim, which was produced in 1982. And then all of a sudden, Don Bluth Productions became a very big competitor to Disney during a time where Disney's animation was... Was not kind of was. Not, yeah, it was not where it was creatively as it had been previously. Well, and not to get too far away from animation, but Disney kind of got away from animation in a lot of ways. Not entirely, but they really weren't sure of what their identity was going to be. And so cable TV is becoming a thing in the late 70s and early 80s and the Disney Channel back then. A lot of Disney productions were taking source material that was interesting i mean you had the black hole which was a huge late 70s movie you know live action movie and it it bombed spectacularly but it was hugely expensive to do you had a ray bradbury classic called something wicked this way comes it's terrifying for little kids and i remember (laughs) seeing it on the disney channel and it gave me nightmares that you wouldn't believe it's still a great tuna show and i love to watch it uh, around halloween time But Disney really then does not in any way, shape, or form resemble the Disney that is the classic Disney or what is going to come out of the ashes later when Disney again decided to be much more family friendly. They really kind of lost their way and that would lead into, well, maybe because of competition from Don Bluth and others and Warner Brothers, but it was also we're going to get back to our roots and you have guys like Michael Eisner coming in and you have a bit of a renaissance. Yes, and they were starting to build toward that, and they needed it because they came out with the Black Cauldron in 1985, which didn't do very well um, in in the box office. Scary, and another scary one. Another scary one that they that they felt that they kind of changed their policy on a little bit. So they were in they were in some trouble animation wise. So a change that they made then was coming up with their own animation television wing. That they created then, which apparently went against a policy that they had set up, that they were not going to do that. They decided to change that. They produced some different stuff with that DuckTales among them. Love DuckTales. That they got into. So Tailspin and gummy bears. And- so they went a different route. And then, then came um, another Bluth versus Disney uh, release that came out. And that came in 1986 where the Bluth Studios, they came out with An American Tale while Disney came out with The Great Mouse Detective. And The Great Mouse Detective um, didn't do quite as well in terms of success, but it still did well enough to give the whole Disney company the thought of, maybe we can pivot back to animated films a little bit more. Even though we went head-to-head and we didn't do quite as well as they did, maybe we can pivot back to animated films a little bit more and give this some more thought and so they did. And to and- give you a little perspective from the time, because I was, you know, still a kid back then. But I remember, you know, I'd have to look. You have to look this up for me because it's in front of you. I'm sure. Uh, An American Tale. Spielberg was involved in that to a degree. I think maybe just produced yes, it, but he was he involved was. in it. You had a hit single somewhere out there, you know. That was a huge hit. Spielberg was involved with The Land Before Time as well, which was another Bluth production. Yeah, he got involved. And at this point, Disney is best known for the parks. And, of course, Mickey Mouse still shows up. There is the Disney Channel. But the current product was kind of eh. Well, Don Bluth, every few years, is coming out with something. And now he's teaming up with Spielberg. You've got Land Before Time. You've got uh, The American Tale. And they're hits. And people are talking about the product versus the brand. And, well, Disney's always been a brand. It's never gone away. 
but they weren't putting out current day product back at that point. And they were there were questions openly: has has Don Bluth and Spielberg, their team up, have they passed Disney? Are they the new Disney? And now we're looking at it from 2020's perspective, and you know, hindsight can be 2020, pun yes. intended. And but at this moment, there were some very serious questions as to what would be coming. And beyond even that, you have things that were associated with Disney, like Roger Rabbit. Just before the Disney Renaissance hit in 1989 and going into the 90s came Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which... Landmark moment. It was a landmark moment because you've got the combination of live action and cartoons using this character, Roger Rabbit, who had been around decades prior, um, or had it... Had it been a little bit more recent with Roger Rabbit? I Roger Rabbit, I think, came out in 87, if I'm not mistaken. But it's not the first time you had live action and, and, and animated together. But clearly it was somebody in front of a screen or something that was interacting with characters, but interacting in quotes. Roger Rabbit took it to a whole new level. They would have apparatuses that would be interacting with the actors that would later yes. be removed because the the character would be over it. Roger Rabbit, let's say, takes a sip of water and interacts with the actor, um, and then they would animate Roger Rabbit over the, the holes or whatever it was that spit the water out, and lots of in-camera gags that had to interact seamlessly with the animation and not only that, it was a battle royal as far as characters, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny together. And there was such contention between who might try to upstage the other that they had the exact same amount of lines, words per line. It got stupid. Go look up the Towering Inferno with uh, Paul Newman and Steve uh, McQueen together and how they had to share the top billing. Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse were the exact same thing here. And in the same scene together, first time and only time, They've ever shared time together on screen in the same shot, although now that uh, that, could, that could change down the road. Who knows? Disney's buying everything. <laughs> yeah, you never know these days with some of the conglomerates that we've talked about before, too. But, but this yeah, was, this was... I had been a little off. I had been quite a bit off. Roger Rabbit did indeed come around in 1981. So an 80s card. I think it was. Oh, uh, his first appearance had been oh, yes, in 1981 yes, yes. in any in any form. But then, yeah, he comes around end of the decade then with that movie, and it ended up becoming a massive hit. Oh, yeah. It was a huge hit. Spielberg worked with Disney oh, yeah. on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and that helped set the stage even more, having a, a film like that that came along, but also combined those two elements of the live action and the cartoon. And that was a, a film that appealed to a wide Everybody. variety of people. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more mature of a storyline as well. It, it's it's not necessarily a kid's storyline. I mean, Roger Rabbit as a cartoon is a little bit more mature anyway as well. So that also played a role. Well, Robert Zemeckis, who was Spielberg's protege, was, I've kind of teased, and I mean this with all due affection, I think he's an improved version of George Lucas. George Lucas is very focused on the technical aspect, well, but sometimes to his you know detriment, leaving some of the performances and actual people on set left to tread their own water, you know, and do their own thing. Zemeckis very technically minded. In fact, Kathleen Turner, who he directed in *Romancing the Stone*, famously said he spent all this time about composing a shot and all the technical stuff and blah blah blah. But the performances certainly didn't get left out. There's some great performances. He directed Forrest Gump. Tom Hanks won won an Oscar for that. He's had other people under him nominated. He directed Back to the Future. But he's always been very 
geared toward the technical aspect and really pushing it forward. He would later do the, the Polar Express and, and other great things. He's done great, great work. But he, he never neglected the actors, and they really continued to do good things. So when you get a great actor like Bob Hoskins and Christopher Lloyd, one of my personal favorites, Doc Brown became a truly terrifying guy when he did Judge Doom. And I mean, he gave kids nightmares in this. But this was live actors that were absolutely convincing and absolutely convincing that they were interacting with Roger Rabbit or Jessica Rabbit or whatever the case, the way they were able to do it was like any other special effects wizardry. How the heck did they do that? Right. And it ended up becoming a pretty entertaining film out of that too. When you talked about George Lucas, I had this thought in my mind and I was I, I was like, yeah, not really working very well with developing the performers. I feel for Hayden Christensen when I hear that yeah. <laughs> a little bit. But anyway, that's just one example. That came no, along. no disrespect intended. Just you know, an observation. That, yes. But it really, it really turned that corner. It woke up Disney. It got animation woken up in its own right. Well, if we can do this like this, let's do. And there, there have been some things like it, but never quite the same. Roger Rabbit is almost a unique movie in that regard, and that. Yeah, we've seen plenty of things where people interact with things. Heck, there was a Paula Abdul music video where she's dancing with a cat. Opposites attract, but still not quite the same. (laughs) So because of the success of Roger Rabbit, Disney brought out The Little Mermaid then in 1989, which apparently they'd been developing since the 30s as far as putting that story together. Well, then in 89, they released it with the music attached into it as well. It not only blew away what Bluth had been releasing at that time, it broke the Land Before Time's record for highest-grossing animated film as well. And now the renaissance was on. I mean, The Little Mermaid launched it. Then then came The Rescuers Down Under. Beauty and the Beast followed after that. Aladdin. The Lion King then in 1994. Hugely successful. Then you have Pocahontas. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Hercules all came after. Mulan and Tarzan then closed out the decade and... It was just a massive, massive animated renaissance for Disney going back to a formula that had been so successful for them for several decades and now in the 90s was once again very successful and put these films back on the big screen again. Animated films that were highly successful on the big screen. Yeah, and they had a bit of a different formula this time. I mean, who was the voice of Snow White? Anyone know without looking it up? Anyone? No, it's just some you know voice actress. Th- that's a good point. Yeah, you that's start, a really good point. You start running into bigger names. Not all the time, not immediately, but you'd also have things like a hit single that was in the movie that was yes. on the pop charts, which a lot of movies back in the 80s would have some sort of a tie-in song, but this was done in the very Disney way. And then you really hit it when 93, right? When The Lion King, was that 94? 93, 94, somewhere in there, The Lion 94. King. 94, yep. You get Matthew Broderick. Ferris Bueller himself doing the voice of Simba, but you, and even bigger than that, you had Tim Rice, who was doing some great stage shows, Elton John, who was Elton John, come on, getting together to do the soundtrack for the movie with you know two huge hit singles that won Oscars. You know this stuff wasn't happening before, and that set the mold. And now everybody's lining up to be a part of it. Now later movies, you've got Mel Gibson doing the voice of some of these things, who at the time was one of the biggest box office stars. So you're getting recognizable names and talent, and not just in the acting capacity, but singers are lining up to do this. Phil Collins would do a song for Tarzan, and they just became the juggernaut, and whatever Bluth was doing before that just got left behind. 
It's amazing, though, when you look through these films and you see how many major award nominations they got for the music, especially, and how diversified the music was among all of these different movies. And, like, for instance, they closed it out with Tarzan. They, they got Phil Collins involved with that one. And whether it was an original song or the soundtrack itself, I mean, they, they just they were laying down some incredible music in these movies. Like, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching back um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame on Disney+, and I was like, the music in this movie is just staggeringly beautiful. And you you got a lot of that in those movies. Just amazing music that accompanied these stories and just added to what were some pretty compelling stories and very entertaining stories that um, that worked for kids and worked for adults. I wonder if uh, Martin Scorsese would agree that that was cinema. That's a good question. <laughs> that is a good question. <laughs> No, no disrespect. I said that a couple times this show. Maybe I'm going out on a limb here. You know, it's worth bringing up, Dave. In 1993, you mentioned 93. Um, that was in between when Aladdin and the Lion King came out. You know what came out in 93 that Disney had worked on? The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, that's right. Also in that time where they went off script a little bit in various ways. Tim Burton, who was who we mentioned earlier, and we can call was it pretty animated. busy that time. Claymation, uh, that we'll count that for animation. Okay. Yes, yep. Tim Burton and was very influential with that. The Nightmare Before Christmas, which has its own major following with that type of movie and what that was. Different kind of animated movie. Claymation has always had kind of its own sidebar that it that it has within the animated scope. Wallace and Gromit comes to mind for me. I wonder if we should bring up Clash of the Titans then. Would that count? We just opened up a whole big can of worms here. <laughs> ah, that's a whole other thing. Might be stretching it out a little bit there, but it's had its own sidebar <laughs> to to what we usually call an animated movie, but that was that had its own real popularity too. So then we need to take a bit of a sidebar here. We talked about, you know, claymation for Clash of the Titans and special effects. And well, how do you make dinosaurs work? Well, way back in the 20s, they did a version called The Lost World, not related necessarily to the Spielberg version, were the dinosaurs. If you're going to have giant creatures, they're all stop motion. They're all claymation. There are lots of different ways to do it. But now we're getting into the digital revolution of the 1980s, and along comes Pixar. Pixar's start was generally for assisting in animation and in not so much animation like cartoons, but you know computer effects and special effects. But they kind of went their own way, and ultimately, long story short, to kind of skip to it, they started as sort of more visual effects and morphed and were purchased later by Disney and become more, you know, Toy Story and, you know, the Pixar movies we all kind of come to know and wish and love, but that's not where it started necessarily. And it's interesting to see how that would come in. And then you start moving into more of a debate as we move into the 90s, traditional animation versus computer animation. Is there one over another? And preference or which we just abandon drawing cartoons and have them all done on computers, that debate to this day still rages. Yeah, so in the 90s, that's when Pixar fully launched with feature films. They had done some shorts previously. There again, shorts, cartoon yeah. shorts have such a an influential role when it comes to bridging that gap into the feature films themselves. So in the 90s, Pixar finally hit the screen with a feature film, and it came in 1995, and it was Toy Story. And Landmark. Incredible. The yeah. first CGI full-length movie ever, 
And it's a classic to this day. I mean, they just did about, what, a year ago, Toy Story 4. What is it about those movies that just has a way of... I mean, Toy Story changed the game on that as far as the visual. But there, there's something about the story, too. Pixar, in its, in its formative years, in its first several films, had an amazing way of being able to blend great music, like you'd expect Randy Newman doing the music there for, um, for Toy Story, with humor and entertainment, but also very compelling storytelling that, that drives deep. And, and we would see that in the future then, too. Um, Finding Nemo. Another good example of that. Maybe the the most famous example, Up, which came at the end of the 2000s. Oh, with yeah. One of the most moving openings that, that you'll see in a movie. Tearjerker for yeah, grown men, yeah. Real tearjerker for, for everybody with the way that that movie opens. Something about it that those movies just have a way of being able to story uh, tell a story that is extremely compelling as well that can move your heartstrings too, but also has those... Those hallmarks that you expect from an animated movie, humor um, and the music. I think I'll give you a comparison. Uh, Here in the 2020s, a lot of people think video gamers are kids. You know, the average age of of a video gamer now in 2020 is like 35 years old. Yep. You have people that have been playing video games since the very beginning. They're still playing them. Well, cartoons aren't just for kids. And that started to become realized. you got parents that are going to this, too. I mean, I sit down and I watch cartoons with my kid, and clearly you can tell the difference between those that are made just for kids. That's a long 30 minutes if I'm sitting down watching a cartoon that's just for the kids. But when you make those movies, like Shrek was a great example. That was made almost equally for the adults and the kids. They would laugh at the same moments for totally different reasons. And in some cases, adult reasons. There's a moment in Shrek where, look at the size of that castle. Do you think he's compensating for something? That's a penis joke in a kid's movie. But kids will never get it. But they're going to laugh at it because it's something completely different to them than what it is for adults. And you start running into that. And I don't mean necessarily adult humor, but you know, themes that are going to resonate with adults that are going to trickle down to the kids. So everybody gets to really thoroughly enjoy the movies. Maybe parents didn't love going to see Snow White, but the kids loved it. But now you get The Little Mermaid. Now you get Beauty and the Beast. You have bigger, broader, adult, much more intricate, rich themes woven in and plenty that the kids are going to enjoy too. Did today's episode just get a PG-13 rating (laughs) attached to it? I'm wondering. (laughs) I don't know. But I'm glad you brought up DreamWorks though because – in the 90s, you also start to see now how the influence of Disney and its renaissance was starting to have on the rest of the film industry for having a place for animated movies. couple of good examples. DreamWorks is the one that maybe most readily comes to mind because you had Shrek that came along. Then you have a movie like Madagascar that comes a little bit later. And then you have something like Despicable Me as well. DreamWorks really started to lean into doing animated films. And we talked about DreamWorks in the the Steven Spielberg episode that we did um, several, several weeks ago. And we talked about how that came around. It had its. It really started to carve out an animation niche in there as well um, with what they did. Then you had. Um, then you get a movie like The Prince of Egypt that was highly popular that came along too. Then you have something like Fox that also got into a little bit of animation. Anastasia was probably the most prominent example of that with the way that they 
got into doing some animation and doing their own storytelling, following that same formula. Get some big-time voices, have a little bit of music in there as well. DreamWorks maybe tried to bridge that bridge that line, like you talked about a little bit earlier, between making it a kid's movie and making it something that maybe will appeal to the adults as well. They they tried to come up, I think, with concepts and storytelling ideas that that did a little bit more of that. You don't think about animation and Steven Spielberg so much in the same breath. And you know, not to go down a Spielberg tangent, we just did a whole episode, like you said, but you know, you have to give it credence. You know, he was involved in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He was teaming up with Warner Brothers and the Looney Tunes cartoons with Tiny Tunes. That was Spielberg. He's been tied into this to some degree or other, much more than people really give him credit for. And then in comes Dreams Work. DreamWorks, not just for live action movies, but also for animation and Shrek and so forth. Spielberg has got a long track record in this. Not that he's got a, a big history himself in doing the drawings per se, but there's clearly a connection there. And so he, I, I can't make a comparison between him and Walt Disney. You just, it's just not there. But um, most definitely, where um, one of the good things with animation is grabbing your imagination. Spielberg has definitely got a chokehold on my imagination and really tied into animation through all the years as well. Here's a question for you when it comes to, uh, there are a few questions I think that come with modern day animated films, Dave. One is, is the use of a major celebrity voice something that throws you off a little bit when you watch an animated movie? Uh, like any movie, if it's good and I'm drawn in, you forget that you are where you are. You forget the reality. Uh, not that I want to draw a comparison to Knives Out, but here's James Bond himself, Daniel Craig, on a deep southern voice, which I can't do. He sounds like Foghorn Leghorn. But, you know, if that's going to work, speaking of it really characters. needs to work, or you're going to be <laughs> very aware, why the hell is James Bond speaking like a giant cartoon rooster? But he did it such a good job. The movie was so well that you just didn't think about it. After the first half a minute, you're like, what? And then you're drawn in. Same thing with an animated movie. If all of a sudden I start hearing somebody's very famous voice coming out of something else, I can't think of Kelsey Grammer and not think about Sideshow Bob. Yes. More so than Frasier, you know? They go equal. You know who it is, but it's such a well-done episode that it doesn't matter. It just pulls you in, and it's after the fact. You're like, yeah, and you know what else? So-and-so did a great job as such-and-such, and it worked. It reminds me, too, of the time when The Simpsons did an episode where they had Sideshow Bob's brother Cecil show up, and yeah. who happens to voice him but David Hyde Pierce, and they knew exactly what they were doing with that brother from another show. Well, Frazier yeah. and Niles just completely done, you know, tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> double joke, haha. Yeah. Still funny and even more funny if you understood the dynamic. But that brings us to the next thing. Are animated shows and movies just for kids? And I think The Simpsons was one of those that came along, uh, starting with shorts on the Tracy Ullman show back in 1987 before getting their own yep. iconic show. Still in the Guinness Book of World Records is the longest-running sitcom ever, starting in the fall of 89, and to this day is still going, uh, now with Disney, so who knows what kind of adjustments are coming. But um, And they've even made jokes about that. The Simpsons predict everything. But The Simpsons, the first 10 seasons in particular, I love Iconic. The Simpsons. After you get pit, like season 11, there's clearly a downturn, you know. You get occasional episodes that are decent, but yeah. that's really it. Yeah. But it is more about stupid rather than brilliantly stupid. You know, you watch some of those first 10 episodes, you can almost pick them at random. Yep. Maybe my personal favorite episode, uh, uh, 
has got to be. I, I love the Treehouse of Terror episodes, which clearly were a little more intense for kids at the point they had to put disclaimers at the front. On the first couple of Treehouse of Horrors, yeah, that's what they did. Because they got angry letters because parents were thinking, that's eh, it's animated, we'll let them watch it. It's like Deadpool. Well, it's a superhero movie. No, you need to be a little more you know, looking into this. Deadpools are, not for kids. Simpsons animated featuring little kids, not for little kids. You know, maybe junior high and up, maybe. But, you know, a lot of folks didn't realize that. And then you follow up with other things, you know, South Park and Family Guy and right. things that are certainly not intended for adults. Well, if it's animated, how come that's not for kids? Because there's so much you can do in an animated show that tickles your funny bone and something else, the, the inappropriate bone, whatever you want to call it. And it just it goes together like salty and sweet. It really just does something that you can't do with real life. And that's part of the humor, I think, that yes. they try to lean into is this is a cartoon that has that kind of feeling to it, which, again, it all depends on what your taste is, if that's something that you like. But, hey, how many but that's time, part of the humor of it. How many times has an animated sitcom been mentioned by a sitting president? The first President Bush was talking about the you know the devolving family values. I'd like to have more families like the Waltons rather than the Simpsons. Right. They had the Simpsons writers write in character to the president and they got a response. He goes, well, we're sorry, we didn't mean to, you know. It was, I mean, that's the kind of impact that that kind of thing can have. It just, not leaking into the public lexicon, it bursts through the wall in a major way. Hey, speaking of the 90s and animated films and just animation in general, I want to go back to another movie from the 90s that that has a place in sports lore as well. Speaking of Who Framed Roger Rabbit back in the 80s, oh, I know Space where you're going. Jam in yeah. the 90s, that one as well, doing the same kind of thing. Um, very That movie has cult icon status from the 90s. Another example of how animated films had landed such a huge part in the 90s that Warner Brothers puts together this idea and they have Michael Jordan in there as well and then they end up shooting that in the summer of 96 and it ends up becoming incredibly popular or wait a minute was that the no st- summer of 95 that yeah. they shot that and then I think it, was it came released out later. in the fall of 96 yeah but anyway yeah. another movie that that had that same kind of impact and huge success Michael Jordan Bill Murray I mean and now you yes. have a sequel with LeBron James coming um which is a great bridge into another animation category that we'll get to here in a moment. Okay, you know, part of what makes animation great is when animation is just out there to have fun. Yes. And I think the first 10 seasons of The Simpsons are a perfect example of that. I think Space Jam is a perfect example of that. Roger Rabbit and a lot of the Disney classics, let's have fun. And then there are times where it's not so much. But when it's really fun and it's really a party, Space Jam qualifies for this. You got you got a lot of that formula. You got big names You've got big music, um, you've got uh, so such fun involved in that movie that why wouldn't you want to have another party? That's right. But sometimes having another party has drawbacks. That's true. And we've seen uh, the sequel revolution happen here. Disney got trapped into doing that in the early 2000s. They... I think they saw the success of some sequels like Toy Story 2, which was a great sequel, and then spawned another great sequel in Toy Story 3. I haven't seen Toy Story 4 yet, so I, I'm not sure where to go with how I with how I feel about that yet. But it almost felt like they got they they started to draw themselves into we gotta make a sequel for everything. A lot of those Renaissance films there in the nineties, a lot of them have sequels that were made that were direct to video. Direct to video and 
really not as well produced. Seemingly cash cows. Seeing what they could make off of that. And seeing if they could glean a little bit more money out of, let's do a cheaper movie that doesn't have quite as much to it as far as structure and story, and we'll send it directly to video. Do you think that that animated films have gotten into a trap of that here, especially the last two decades, of getting too sequel happy? They want to go back to enjoy the party, but they want to do so with one hand tied behind their back sometimes. I think it's not tied behind their back. I think it's in their wallet. I think, hey, let's get a cash grab. Let's find a way to do something. We don't have any new ideas. Let's resurrect something. Uh, even more recently, the trend is taking classic animated movies and doing a live-action version of them. Uh, take The Lion King, for example, which was an original Disney production. It wasn't based on a previous fairy tale like Beauty and the Beast, which is an old-time story. They did a, a film version, which was hugely successful. Celine Dion on the soundtrack there before she was really well-known. Spawned a musical, yeah. a stage musical. And then yep. they did the live-action version, which actually worked. The Lion King, not so much. Well, what was, what was the problem? Sometimes you catch lightning in a bottle and there's such a craftsmanship and there's such an original vibe here. And there's just, it's something, it's the X factor. You can't define it. It just is. But originality in its purest form oftentimes has got a lot of that X factor in it. When you're starting to just rehash, rehash, that X factor is gone. You might have love and care and tenderness and the best of intentions, but it just isn't the same thing. It's the same dialogue. It's the same songs, but it's not all the same thing. The not ju- every cake rises. The Jungle Book was a, a CGI reproduction that kind of went to the contrary. That worked very some work. well. Some yes, don't some, work. some do. Same with sequels. Some are a good idea. Toy Story 2 was a great idea. Others, you can just tell... They're throwing this out there just yeah. because Lion King two, Lion King one and a half, which I, I mean that was that that kind of found its own niche. Never by heard of being, a half sequel like that before. Yeah, by being a little bit <laughs> offbeat, it found its own little niche with that. But you get you start to get into. I mean, some of the other sequels that they came up with for all those Renaissance movies. I mean, you look at all of them, and I think almost all of them have some kind of a sequel that was direct to video, where it's like. This is nothing more than trying to further the story and maybe make some money off of it. And you're not actually getting something that's very well done, for better or for worse. Pixar has gotten into the same kind of habit with the movies they've done. Cars was, I think, a a major moment for Pixar in multiple respects. Pretty entertaining movie, entertaining story. It was a merchandise monster. And it kind of got away from them because they had all these yes. cars with lead paint on them. So a lot of those toys had to be handed back. And then, if you remember, yeah. And then you've got and but they saw how successful it was commercially and merchandise wise, and they said, "Well, we've got to make more movies." Cars two, Cars three come along, not very good, and not very good movies. And Cars the original was okay, but they got so entrapped by let's make some money off of this that then. Those became ill-advised sequels. Well, and we've kind of talked about this before in its own way. Why are we doing a sequel? Are you doing it because you've got a really good idea? I mean, there's probably a reason that there's, on average, 10 years between each Toy Story movie. You know, they've, hey, let's do a sequel. No, we don't really have a... Then someone comes up with an idea. Oh, we've got an idea. And, you know, I don't think if if Tom Hanks saw the script and said, I'll, I'll do it if the script is good. And the script's not good. I'm not going to do it. Come up with a better idea, guys. Um, there's a reason that there's 
and four Toy Story movies spread out over, what, 30 years, roughly? The first two were four years apart, but yep. then, yeah, it, it took 11 Ten years. years or so. 11 years for the next one, and then after that, it was a separation of nine years. Nine years, okay. So, you know, roughly, we'll call it 10 years apart. Yeah. But there, every one of them, you could tell there was a reason, ooh, let's do this, rather than Cars 15 Hey, let's do another Cars movie. Well, what are we going to do? I don't know. What do Cars do? Well, I saw one back into a bush. Perfect. There's your show. It became like Seinfeld animated. You know, it didn't really matter. We'll just get some names. You know, they're looking for paychecks. We'll get. They were lazy. I mean, we're just going to call them out and say we're just looking for money. We're not coming up with original ideas. We just, we just bought Lucasfilm. We need to make some money. <laughs> we're going to put anything and everything we can do out there to make money. Park t- attendance is down. We need to make money. Let's just crank something out, guys. But it's not just Disney. Oh, it, no, it's, it's not, not just Disney. Disney. I mean, look at, I mentioned Despicable Me earlier. That's become a huge franchise that has spun off into doing movies just on the minions, some of their characters within there. you got Hotel Transylvania, which I seem to see a new movie for that every week <laughs> that seems to come out. You've got... You've got all kinds of animated movies that have gotten into that trap of let's just make another one, let's make another one, let's make another one if there is some relative success at the box office rather than is there a lot of quality to this or is it just let's have the kids show up and and have a good time at the movie. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to to approach how you look at it, but but some you don't have that that real impact that some of those originals have and it gets lost when you want to attach into a sequel frozen was massively successful when it came out another huge moment for animated films and for those cgi or those those more rounded animated films those 3d animation type of films that came out frozen was huge in in that regard but it too once again went went the sequel route and and let's continue the story on it seems to be a trend with animated movies these days. Yeah. You know, Pixar is much more associated with Disney because they were purchased by Disney, but they are kind of their own company owned by Disney. Um, they're very connected to Disney animation, but they're not Disney animation. There's been contention between the Pixar people and the Disney people, as connected as they are, because Pixar has given marching orders. You know, hey, we're going to do another one of those movies. Do it. Have you ever been told to do something by your wife, by your mom? You're going to clean your room, but you don't want to clean your room. So you kind of half-ass it. You know, you don't really do a great job at it because you don't want to. When you're told to be creative about something and you're going to have it done by this date, you don't really feel the creative juices flowing, do you? You're under a mandate to do it, so you just kind of go through the motions. When Disney, you got to feel, hands it down, okay, we're going to do Cars was great. We We sold a lot of toy cars. We want to make all new toy cars so we can sell those, and we want this out by two summers from now. Go. You're not really motivated to do it because you feel like you've said all you needed to say in the first one, which was the best because you were motivated to do it. Well, we've got ideas about other things. Yeah, 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 but later. And again, it's not just Disney, but we're sticking with animation, and that seems to be the biggest one. Shrek. There you go. We'll sh- we'll shake it up. Shrek 2 was fun. After Shrek Two in particular. Eh. Then it became about let's make some. Oh money yeah, off there's of a this. reason they've stopped making Shrek movies. You know, it's they just they kind of got to the point where this is getting dumb. You know, why dig a hole any deeper? The first one was absolutely spectacular. The second yeah. one, very good follow up, and beyond that, Shrek the Third and Shrek after after and Shrek goes to the bathroom and you know all this it just got dumb. And at some point, you run its course. You run it into yeah. the ground, and then you run it in a little deeper, and then you pull the big guy card. Well, we're going to give him a break, and you know because you've run him into the ground. 
come up with good ideas. You get great talent, but if you don't have the motivation there because it's just trying again, dragging yourself out of bed to do it again. I've watched a couple of animated movies over the last few months um, during the pandemic, and a thought that comes to mind for me is have animated movies changed for good in that we will always now see them as being this three-dimensional kind of animation that we're seeing that has really come about, um, something like Tangled or like we mentioned with, uh, with Frozen. Are we going to see animation like that be the run-of-the-mill animation these days, or will we see some of that more two-dimensional or that rounded two-dimensional animation? Will we see some of that still have a place in the future? That's a thought that's been running through my mind, and I wonder if there will be, if there will ever be this sort of nostalgic desire to want to return to some to a little bit of animation that's like that. I think, yeah. I, I don't think it's ever gone away, but you know, CGI is easier to do. Because hand-drawn animation is exactly that. It's hand-drawn, you know. But I think it's also an art form, and I'd hate to see any kind of art form disappear. You know, how many times do we use a loom nowadays in the world? They're all done by computer, but there's still some artisans, truly artisans, that know how to do this thing. There's some people that love to doodle and draw, and that's great, but hopefully that's not just for a sketchbook so that you can do it for real in the computer rather than to do it with real professional tools and really make it work. I'd hate to see that kind of art disappear and give way to something that's faster, easier, quicker, cheaper, rather than artwork. And that kind of leads to what we were just talking about. Let's do art rather than something fast, quick, and easy. Sometimes you don't want to make breakfast. Sometimes you want a nice, home-cooked, you know, hearty, all-American, on-the-farm, roosters crowing in the background breakfast, and not just, hey, not their breakfast, sir. Yep. You know? And that's the same with art. It's the same with animation, live action, or otherwise. Um, when you really have good craftsmanship in the visual, in the storytelling, and all that goes into it, boy, you get something special. The cake rises, and boy, does it. It is amazing, though, what animation has become today with the advent of that more three-dimensional picture that you get. I mean, look at Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, another recent example of a great animated film that has come along here just recently, and it was Sony and Columbia doing that one, but... But look another at what was, look another at what was, example of great visual, though, that, that comes with the newer style of animation that's come along. But it was such a great idea. I mean, you've got the Marvel that Cinematic Universe yeah. that finally got Spidey tied into it for a while. You had the behind-the-scenes wrangling issues, which is a whole other issue. But clearly, they came up with a great idea. And you had every incentive to say, no, we've got Spidey on the big screen as part of the MCU. That's what we're going to do. They realize, we've got something really special here. Yes, let's let this do its own thing. And boy, did it go into an original direction. I mean, there's multiverses, and then there's like, whoa. And it, it it won an Oscar for what it did. It clearly broke the mold of anything Spidey that had come out prior. And even at the time, you had two movies that same year featuring Spider-Man, live action and now computer. And it worked wonderfully. You know, that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Well, let's crank out another one because we can't. that was an original idea. A very original idea, well done, well crafted, loved, and it was pretty obvious. And if you can do that, animated or otherwise, yes, but that doesn't happen every day, and that's not the kind of thing you can order. I doubt anybody at you know involved with Spider-Man said, hey, I would like you to do a movie about a multiverse. Somebody had an idea and said, you know what I'd love to see? And it spawned organically from there. 
And it, the end result, you can't argue with it. It is spectacular. But then you look back at Sony saying, we need to reboot. After just doing the Tobey Maguire versions, we need to reboot. We're going to basically redo the first story a little differently. We're going to get Andrew Garfield and the Amazing Spider-Man. Those movies just didn't really work. They're not horrible, but they just didn't work. They're not on the same level. There's a reason that they just kind of, eh. Yeah, yeah. You know, and now we've got something better with the MCU version of it um, and Spidey into the multiverse, too. Yeah, and that movie gives me some some hope, and it's a great signal that animated films still have a lot of great new ideas that are out there to be had and stuff that can be very fresh. And it was a great moment, too, for a lot of those animated superhero type of movies, which we haven't even gotten into talking about those but because a lot of those have been direct-to-video, but they've kind of been under the surface for several decades now. That's where Mark Hamill's career really went after Star Wars. Where did he pop up? He popped Joker. up a lot as the voice of the Joker in those animated feature films that a lot of those superhero um, companies had gone the route of. Uh, a lot of those comic companies had gone of... How do we get this out onto the screen? Well, let's go the route of making this a feature film. A lot of them direct to video, but they became very popular, and there's some excellent ones that are out there too. Um, and they've had their own niche. You know, and here's the interesting thing: time really. And is we're the not true- even talking about anime either. Yeah. I mean, and anime is its own separate, massive category in terms of success and animated films and interest on that. That is a, a enormous wing of this, too, that is, that is worth bringing up and talking about as well. Uh, well. Before we get into anime, I was going to make a point that time is the true barometer of this stuff. Sometimes something comes out and it, doesn't, it, it does what it does. And sometimes it disappears forever after that. And other times it gets almost bigger. And you get uh, some movies that don't get the love right away that all of a sudden become classics. Yeah. The Wizard of Oz, you know, is a classic, but, you know, the original film version, it wasn't as embraced at the time. It got huge after the fact. We've talked about Shawshank Redemption in that regard. It should have been the best picture, but kind of got big after the fact. Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It was an also-ran. Well, now it's a holiday classic in the same vein as It's a Wonderful Life. When it came out in 1989, it wasn't like that. It over time, people have watched it and then watched it again, and now it's become part of things. So when these shows come out right now, you're like, eh, it didn't really work out. Who knows? Twenty years from now, maybe Amazing Spider-Man, for whatever reason, becomes much more beloved than the Tobey Maguire version. I don't see that happening, but who knows? Time is going to do what time does. So a lot of these animated things and a lot of these direct-to-video things, and you know, Batman: Mask of the Phantasm, it had its Great fans example. at the time. But now it's become much bigger almost now than it ever was before. Yeah. Because people that were brought up on it and people that didn't know anything about it have been introduced to it over the over the years since, and now they're really growing to love it. Some folks that are introduced to Mark Hamill because of his return as Luke Skywalker, well, you got to hear a version of the Joker. Well, I've heard about him, but I've never seen him. Well, you've got to watch him. Now you're getting new fans. Now it continues to build. So time. Kind of does that. All right, switching to anime. I had a roommate in college that was big into Dragon Ball Z, which is its own kind of anime. And, you know, anime, a lot of the Japanese art. It's its own style in a lot of ways. Uh, Surrealistic a little bit, impressionistic a little bit, I guess. I'm not artistic enough to really know if I've got my isms right. But um, its own flavor, definitely. And he sat me down on the couch one day. You've got to watch a few episodes of Dragon Ball Z, man. I mean, they're not my thing. 
but you could certainly see the appeal and they really do have their own flavor and they're much more i think the closest anime i ever got into was voltron when i was a kid because that kind of anime that was japanese animation and uh that was huge and that was cool and a lot of that goes that way anime is pretty darn cool it's a different flavor it's a different style very far removed from disney so anyone that asks the question aren't all animated movies the same no simpsons movie is nothing like pinocchio is nothing like dragon ball z and anime they're very very different flavors between those Anime movies haven't ever really had a big appeal to me. Like when I was a kid, I I got into Pokemon a little bit, um, just a little bit, and that was by way of some friends that I that I had some interest in that. But um, I, I've never really been into it as much as other people. But the following is remarkable. It is remarkable how attached people are to those stories as well as to just the visuals that come with them as well. It's like you're taking. A comic book and and truly putting it on screen and there's a great appeal for that 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 people really enjoy and the great stories that that come with them some really good storytelling and the appeal is global as well it is massively global um with the way that those that a lot of those different stories whatever it may be have have really taken up whether it's dragon ball z or pokemon or some of the others that have been created over the years um those are some of the more tentpole ones but there are there are many others then you can you just start kind of going down a rabbit hole then as far as getting into um some of those different stories and and people love them and one of the things i notice a lot with anime is they tend to have more adult themes I don't mean like you know, oh yeah they're, for kids. they're permeated through the story oh yeah. yeah this is definitely you know it's 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 almost a hybrid it's not you know adult sake for adult sake like South Park where it's all you know girls duty poopy jokes and whatever it's it's deeper issues wider spread issues that are not engineered for kids not to say that kids couldn't learn something from them but you have to look at that like well I don't think so and so my little kiddo is old enough for this yet. He'll get to Dragon Ball Z, but not yet. He needs. I'll wait till he's six or eight or whatever you decide. Because anime is not Disney. It's just it's much more broad, adult themed. I guess would be the way to go and put that than your standard animation is. But we're also running into the point where standard animation is taking a cue from the popularity of anime and working some of that into that. How many animated shows are there right now? Some of the Star Wars animated shows, Star Wars Rebels. My kiddo's watching that. It's kid-oriented, but it's much more adult-oriented than the Star Wars cartoons when I was a kid. So a lot of that, I see some similarities from what they do in anime, and they kind of brought that into a more mainstream with the Star Wars Rebels and so forth, Clone Wars. And it clearly is, it's not your kids' cartoons anymore. Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse may have been the start of things, but that's not where, that's not the only yard that the kids are playing in anymore. Absolutely not, and that's why animated films, animated TV shows continue to hold a major place in the film spectrum today, and I mean, that's why it's great that there's a best animated film category at the Oscars to recognize that, because... How long has it been that 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 category has been around? Not that long. I think Up changed the game. Okay. I'm 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 speaking off the top of my head. I could be off, but I want to say Up change the game. I mean, you got to think about it this way. There's a lot of people that instantly write off cartoons and animation as kids fair. How many adults cried their eyes out at Up or moments of <laughs> Toy Story 3? We were at a barbecue and I hadn't seen Toy Story 3 and it just happened to come on. The barbecue ceased and we all sat and cried around the TV watching Toy Story 3. 
2001 was okay. the first year. Shrek was the first one to win it for best animated feature. Okay. best animated feature film. Well, that's yeah. right on the heels of Toy Story 2, and yeah. you know Shrek, of course, then out too. So you've got a lot of things that really were changing, and clearly, this is not just kids' fair anymore. This is the real deal. Here's a trivia question for you, Dave, and this will be fun for the listeners too. Can you name the first animated film nominated for best picture? There have actually been three that have been nominated for Best Picture. Two of them came later when they increased the number of nominations. I thought Snow White was, wasn't it? Not Snow White. Nope. You're waiting for an answer. Oh, okay. uh, Might it have been Fantasia? It was not Fantasia. Nope. Okay, well, you got my guesses. You're, you're going too far back. Oh, I, would have, I honestly would have thought Snow White would have been there because it changed things so much. Well, I'll check. I, I don't think it was, though. I don't believe it was nominated for... It wouldn't. It wasn't Toy picture. Story. I remember there was a debate about it, but it what didn't happen. It was nominated for best musical score. Snow White was, but not for best picture. Okay, I, fir- I don't know. The first animated film nominated for best picture was Beauty and the Beast in oh, 1991. Oh. Yep. So part of that Disney Renaissance. The other two then up and Toy Story three when yeah. they expanded the category out a little bit, they got a chance to be in the running. And that tells you something. Go look at any movie. Forget if it ever won Best Picture, but was nominated for Best Picture. There's some, they're as different as they all are. There are some unifying themes that are kind of present throughout. When you start running into animated movies like that that have those themes that are kid oriented, but Toy Story three, it's it's kind of a sad movie. It's a great movie, but it's got some sadness and a nice happy ending to it. Um, yeah, there's this. Does animated movies are they just two dimensional, so to speak? Heck no. Some cases, yes. In growing cases, heck no. Feature films, TV shows, you name it. I mean, animation, you can do it cheaper. You can do it maybe not faster, but there's things you can do in animation that would cost a heck of a lot more to do in real life and make it look reasonable. Um, that is, you're, you're only limited by your own imagination, and that's about it. That's right. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater located on Highway 2 just down from the airport. Very wide-ranging episode today, getting into talking about animated films. There's probably a lot that we didn't get a chance to get into and discuss today. I'm really glad we got that piece about anime in there as well, because that was one that as we were going, I was like, hey, we got to make sure that we get anime in there too and talk about that as well, because there's it's such a a wide-ranging topic. You have to look at the history of it to really see how we've gotten to the present of where we are. But like I said earlier based on what we've seen in the last decade, even though sequels have been prevalent and that that quest for merchandise has been prevalent, we see so many examples that have come along in the last decade that are proof that there is a lot more to come when it comes to storytelling and creative ideas with animation that will be not just something that appeals to the kids or appeals to the wallets of these these companies that produce these movies, but that will also produce a very good tale as well. You know, like any movie, animated or otherwise, show or otherwise, you get a preview for it and you're like, oh, I gotta see that. And others, eh. You know, if you've got some, if you've got it all there, if you've got all the ingredients and you've got everything there and it's clearly something that's original and inspired, you got inspired people that want to go and see it. So you start focusing on things like Spidey into the multiverse where people are allowed to be artistic and creative and let things grow au naturel versus here's your mandate, go. There's a way to do both, and if you could find a way to make it profitable and really well done, the future is yours, my friends. The future is yours. That's right. 
I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies. 